Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. My name is Spencer Walsh. Thank you so much for joining us. We got a great one for you, as always. We are starting on the show today with Donald Trump. He has been arraigned. He was arraigned yesterday in Miami. Of course, all the good stories have to happen one day after we're um, oh, one day after we're on the air, just in between our shows. But whatever, it's all right. Um, we will break down the indictment, what it means, the circus that it was, and what comes next for Donald Trump again. As we talked about in the last show, separating out the two categories of what is politically legitimate in the course of the crazy Republican primary and what is legally legitimate, uh, which is kind of a completely different story and could make things a little bit tighter uh, than the freewheeling GOP primary political world. Meanwhile, a new poll actually from Jacobin Magazine in YouGov. Um, finding that economic populism can't help progressives win with more working class voters. Uh, also, another great piece from Oliver Eagleton. Um, we'll go through all of it, but we'll go through a good chunk. What explains some of the authoritarian news coming out of Great Britain? And it's been quite a lot. There's actually manning down on the freedom to protest now. It's been pretty crazy. And we will end on the light note with probably one of the dorkiest videos I've seen in a while. Thanks so much. This is Flash. All right, so we start off with Donald Trump getting arraigned today. Our, um, yeah, we start off with the story today, but obviously that happened yesterday. He surrendered to federal authorities on in Miami on Tuesday and was arraigned on charges that he put national security secrets at risk and obstructed investigators. Some pr- pr- really kind of pretty remarkable stuff um, coming out of this indictment. I mean, on a legal level, uh, on the merits of the situation, like it is, you know, pretty serious. He, you know, showing these. Um, documents to you know these plans top secret plans for North Korea essentially to his friends for to, to Iran you know showing the kid rock you know and they even they kind of going uh, you know are you supposed to be showing me this did you classify this and then of course we have the audio on tape uh, being like uh, of Trump being like you know at least according to the indictment being like Oh no! Um, I'm not supposed to do this. Isn't that interesting? You know, I'm just showing. You. Isn't that interesting? It was, it was the uh, exact phrase that he apparently used, which is just hilarious to me, honestly. <laughs> um, um, and you know, how many? You know, we we have seen we've seen stories of you know countless over the over the Trump years, especially these federal agents trying to get into our you know foreign agents, excuse me, trying to get into some of Trump's clubs. Um, you know, that can lead all sorts of different directions. You know. Very, very kind of interesting. He was booked, uh, fingerprinted, and led to a courtroom on the 13th floor of the Federal District Court, where his lawyer entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. Sitting among the spectators about 20 feet away was Jack Smith, the special counsel overseeing the investigation that led to the 38-count indictment of Trump aide, uh, Trump and himself, uh, Trump and his personal aide, excuse me, Walt Nauta, uh, who was also present for the proceedings but did not enter a plea. Um, he spent much, much of the arraignment um, with uh, arms his arms folded in a grim expression. Um, Trump did, and Smith, who the New York Times is describing here as a flinty former war crimes prosecutor, 
honestly, probably was not very busy. I'm going to go out and and say through the grand scheme of his career, but that's okay. Um, he was apparently uh, did not exchange either a word or a glance. Um, the 50-minute hearing, both mundane and momentous, marked the start of what is sure to be a months-long process of bringing Trump to trial against the backdrop of a presidential race in which he is the front-runner for the Republican nomination. Um, he's also obviously been charged in Manhattan and is now, this is over the, uh, he, he's got two kind of more looming uh, legal situations, which is the Fulton County, Georgia, scrutinizing his efforts to reverse the election and uh, in Georgia in 2020 and a federal investigation into Trump's efforts to retain power and in the ensuing January 6, 2021 assault on the Capitol by a pro-Trump mob. Um, the outside of the courthouse made a heavy police presence. Small groups of pro-Trump demonstrators voiced their support for the former president who has announced the indictment as the latest installment of a long-running, politically-inspired witch hunt and inside Trump moved briskly through the process of becoming a defendant in a federal case with the authorities seeking to minimize anything that could be interpreted as an attempt to further embarrass the former president. He was not required to have his mugshot taken. The government did not ask for travel restrictions often imposed those accused of serious crimes, and prosecutors seem willing to grant him generous bond terms without demanding cash bail. Um, so yeah, definitely something, you know, which I think is probably for the, the smartest, because he did do some pretty crazy things. Um, you know, and the fact that he's in here, I think, is a kind of a sign that, you know, at least we have some sort of, some sort of ability to uh, get powerful people in, you know, it's a very, very small ability to hold powerful people people accountable as we talked about in the last show it's because he did a crime that was isolated kind of outside the system just for the benefit of himself and a few others not for the benefit of many other people and kind of over you know over time you know like committing war crimes you know that someone like jack smith apparently would have to uh, prosecute um but you know, I think for just the general trust, you know, if, if we're really if we're really trying to ensure that the the country doesn't go into civil war, you know, excessively humiliating uh, President Trump probably would not be the way to do it. Um, yeah, but obviously, if he'd been any other person, he probably would have been treated a fair bit differently. Um, yeah. You know, I just want to go through, I mean, he's, you know, I'm sure you've heard at this point about the documents in the ballroom. Um, b- documents in the bathroom with the chandelier, um, you know, in the uh, incredibly low toilet everyone's uh, everyone's been referencing online. Um, Trump told employees to move his very important papers to a more public location. Um, he directed that a storage room on the ground floor of the Mar-a-Lago Club be cleaned out so that it could be used to store his boxes. I, like, I love my boxes, folks. Um, the hallway leading to the storage room could be reached through uh, multiple entrances, including the one accessible from the Marlowe Club pool patio through a doorway that was often kept open. The store was storage room was near the liquor supply closet, linen room, uh, lock shop, and various other rooms. Um, so just they're all just put in that. At least you put them in a, in a storage room that was, oh yeah, only accessible from pretty much every other point in the club. Uh, there was a bunch of secret documents were also spilled on the floor. Um uh, so Nada found several of Trump's boxes fallen and their contents spilled onto the floor of the storage room, including a document marked secret R.E.L. to USA five I, uh, which was the five eyes intelligence alliance. Um, 
to try not a texted Trump employee too. I opened the door and found this. Uh, Nada also attached two photographs he took of the spill. Uh, Trump, uh, <laughs> Trump employee two replied, "Oh no, no, oh no, oh no," and then I'm sorry, POTUS had my phone. Uh, and one of the uh, photographs, not a text of Trump employee two, was depicted with visible classified information redacted. Um, and of course, some copies of the Washington Post kind of hanging out there. Um, he, this is what I referenced earlier. Uh, during a meeting with staff that did not possess security clearances, he whipped out the Pentagon plans for attacking another country, declaring, this totally wins my case. You know, Trump was being recorded to help with a memoir that Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, was working on. Um, although the names were omitted from the indictment, CNN's reporting indicates that Trump was trying to counter reports that top U.S. General Mark Milley had talked him out of starting a war with Iran. In Trump's defense, uh, what was he supposed to do? Not expose secret military plans to uh, win the argument with Billy that he didn't know that they were having. Um, yeah, so it really is pretty uh, pretty remarkable. So Trump goes, well, the senior military official, um, Mark Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said, I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, this was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the saying it was really Mark Milley who was pushing it in the first place. Um, uh, this was the defensive department and him. Uh, we looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. Also, just starts pages long. Look, staffer. Mm. Wait a minute. Let's see. Yeah, isn't this amazing? This totally wins my case. <laughs> and then Trump goes, except it's like highly confidential. Um, and then later you see. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, yeah, so he was. He goes. I was thinking because we heard to talk about it, and you know, he said he wanted to attack country A and what. And then the staff goes, "You did." Uh, Trump goes, "This was done by the military and given to me." Uh, I think we can probably write. I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to see. We'll have to try to declassify it. Trump says, "Figure out a yeah." The staffer says, "See, as a president, I could have declassified it." Trump says, and then the staffer goes, "Yeah." And then Trump goes, now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. <laughs> and then Trump goes, isn't that interesting? It, that is just hilarious. Um, he also shared a classified map with a political uh, operative. Uh, the National Archives moved, asked for the documents, so he moved them to his residence, uh, just kind of moving them around. Not at all the FBI. He didn't know anything about the boxes that he was moving, which apparently was false. <laughs> But apparently, Trump allegedly suggested to lie to the feds to protect, quote, my boxes. It's like my precious, you know, something like that. There's a list of things here um, that was in the New York, uh, New York magazine. Apparently, um, he apparently praised Hillary Clinton for deleting those 30,000 emails. Um, apparently, he said... Uh, that was the one who deleted all of her emails, the 30,000 emails, because uh, referring to an attorney, because they basically dealt with her scheduling and her going to the gym and her having beauty appointments. And he was great. And he, so she didn't get in any trouble because he said that he was the one who deleted them. Uh, so apparently Trump related to the story more than once that day. Uh, he was a plucking, a <laughs> this, this is a very good one. Um, um, so 
he made apparently a plucking motion. Uh, so Trump and Attorney One then discussed what to do with the Redwell folder containing documents with classification, classification marking uh, and whether Trump Attorney One should bring them to his hotel room and put them in a safe place there. During that conversation, Trump made a plucking motion as memorialized by Trump Attorney One. Uh, quote, he made a funny motion as though, well, okay, why don't you take them with your ho- with you to your hotel room and if there's anything really bad in there, you know, you can like pluck it out. And that was the motion he made. <laughs> he didn't say specifically pluck it out, but he made a plucking motion in this guy's uh, interpretation. Um, apparently, a Trump family member, Melania, texted, uh, Good afternoon, Walt. I saw you put boxes to POTUS room, just FYI, and I will tell him as well. Not sure how many he wants to take on Friday on the plane. Uh but why does he call his, why does she call her own husband POTUS? You gotta call me POTUS, Melania. Uh, that's the only way. Uh, we will not have any room for them. Plane will be full with luggage. Thank you. And she puts not in all capital letters. Um, and then Nada goes, Good afternoon, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and I put a little smiley face emoji. I think he wanted to pick from them. I don't imagine he wanted to take all the boxes. Uh, so, again, just a very just Trump hijinks, Trump world hijinks, just one of the best uh, stuff right there. Um, but, yeah, uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see what comes next uh, as he goes to trial. He's been assigned with the judge Eileen Cannon, uh, who earlier handled a lawsuit he filed challenging the FBI's court-authorized search of his Florida State Club in Mar-a-Lago. Ruling in Trump's favor in that case by Judge Cannon, who was nominated by Trump, was later overturned by an appeals court that was sharply critical of her legal reasoning. But Tuesday's hearing was overseen by Magistrate Judge Jonathan Goodman. Magistrate judges handle many of the routine procedural aspects of court cases. Nada was unable to enter a plea because he still lacked local counsel. Judge Goodman set a hearing for June 27th for Nada to enter a plea. Trump and Nada were ordered by Judge Goodman not to discuss the criminal case, even though the two work closely together and practically see each other every day. Uh, and all discussions of their case apparently must go through the lawyers. I'm sure that's going to happen, uh, for sure. Um, but anyway, let's go on to our next story. A really interesting uh, poll has come out in Jacobin, of all places. Didn't know they did polls. I guess they do. Um talking about working class voters as the recent defeat of progressive Philadelphia mayoral candidate uh, Helen Gim vividly demonstrated progressives like Democrat uh, like Democrats broadly continue to struggle with working class voters progressives ever uh, hardly ever run outside of deep blue districts and then uh, when they where they typically depend on middle class constituencies for their victory and with notable exceptions like Fetterman in 2022 they often fail to compete effectively in heavily working class areas when they do run since 2020 uh, however, at least some of the progressives have begun to recognize the scale of the problem, dedicating more attention to bread and butter economic issues they hope will resonate with working class voters in reengaging the labor movement, which honestly, uh, you know, progressives have had problems with white working class voters, black working class voters, everywhere in between. Um, so this is, uh, they, they apparently already did a study on this, but it left some questions unanswered. Um, including which elements of economic populism are most critical for persuading working-class voters. Would economic populist candidates still prove effective in the face of opposition messaging against Republican populist challenges? And how do voter preferences vary across class, classes and within the working class? 
can populist economic messaging rally support for working class voters across the partisan divide? And to address those questions, we've designed a new survey experiment in which we presented seven pairs of hypothetical candidates to a representative group of 1,650 uh, uh, 1, voters. Uh, we assessed a vast range of candidate types um, to better understand which candidates perform best overall and among different groups of voters. Uh, apparently, uh, some of the key takeaways are running on a jobs platform, uh, including a federal jobs guarantee, can help progressive candidates. Virtually all voter groups prefer a candidate who runs on a jobs platform. Remarkably, respondents' views were pretty positive around candidates running a jobs guarantee. They were pretty consistent across Democrats, independents, and even Republicans. Candidates who ran on jobs guarantee were also popular with black respondents, swing voters, low propensity voters, respondents without a college degree, and rural respondents. Pretty much all the groups, black and white working class, that especially those progressive the squad and people like that have really struggled with um, across 36 different combinations of candidate rhetoric and policy positions we surveyed. The single most popular combination was an economic populist rhetoric and a, some kind of a jobs guarantee. Um, the populist us versus them rhetoric appeals to working class voters regardless of partisan affiliation, which is not a surprise. Um, you know, and that's obviously going to be the one that's probably going to turn off middle class and upper class white liberals the most, honestly, because you know I've I've heard it <laughs> given my kind of political and socioeconomic position. It's like, oh, why do we have to make an us versus them narrative? Why can't we all just get along? But again. Very, very few Democrats understand this, and some of the most successful, some of the most uh, effective Democrats, really, and politicians in general really do, that it is an us versus them narrative. It is, you know, you have to draw a contrast between you and your opponent. You have to say, this person is bad, this, I am good, I will defeat them, here's why. Um, working class Democrats, independents, Republican women, Republicans, women, and rural respondents all prefer candidates to use populist language, that is, sound bites that name economic or political elites as a major cause to the country's problems and call on all working Americans to oppose them. Running room not only working class candidates can help progressive attract more working class voters. Blue and pink collar Democratic candidates are popular among, uh, popular among, more popular, excuse me, uh, than professional and or upper class candidates, um, which is, you know, pretty pretty interesting and pretty important to say. Uh, some of the most preferred uh, kind of occupations, I guess, are uh, middle school teacher, construction worker, doctor, etc. And then you got corporate executive and lawyer, kind of on the other end of terms of preferred people uh, who they want to run. Candidates who also use class-based populist messaging are particularly popular with blue-collar workers. Democrats need to win in many purple states. Manual workers, a group that gave majority support to Trump in 2020, favor economic populist candidates that more strongly uh, than any other occupation group. Low propensity voters also have a clear preference for these candidates. Um, as we, as we, you know, I think the thing is here, as we kind of get out a shape of these people, um, it's going to be, I think it's also kind of worth delving into and getting into what are some of the obstacles to get someone who's these kind of working class language coming from a background um, that is, you know, a working class background and running on things like jobs uh, and the jobs guarantee. Um, like, I, it largely is, you know, you could say, oh, like the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party is definitely going to be a stop to any sort of person who's remotely left of someone like, you know, Elizabeth Warren or whatever. Um, but 
the question is, you know, in these types of situations, um, you know, are we going to have one or, you know, the, the right institutions, the right people in place to kind of go past that kind of college, uh, college educated mindset, this kind of like, uh, you know, this type of candidate that gives off like that really does kind of dominate the think tank world, the kind of professional activism world that, oh, you know, I went to college, I know how to do it. You know, we're talking about, you know, intersectionality and racing class, you know, like all that kind of stuff that's like, you know, and start, when, start breaking out the lingo, you know, essentially. Um, and on a political front, you know, this is obviously not to kind of attack the the merits of some of those discussions, which are obviously very, very important to have. But across the board, uh, we see that in the political sphere, economic language, economic populist language, this research really does show is more effective uh, and cuts through to a broader swath of people than some of that ends up doing. All right, coming up next, we're going across the pond to a wonderful article from Oliver Eagleton about the UK. MC, make another hit. This ain't what you want. Project, project, this ain't what you want. This ain't what you want. You're listening to Newsflash right here on the Spencer Walsh Radio Network. Help us grow our audience. Subscribe, rate, and review our show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Thank you very much. All right, so we are taking you to the UK today. Um, and we're talking about uh, with Oliver Eagleton has a new article out. Um, yeah, so it really has been uh, pretty remarkable. I don't know if you knew, um, but... Here's a breakdown here, uh, which is pretty interesting. He writes, um, For onlookers, Britain's repressive turn is something of an enigma. Why are restrictions being tightened on public protest, journalism, trade unionism, and in a country where civil unrest is virtually absent? Uh, which is <laughs> quite notable. It's like you had some kind of a labor strike, stuff like that. It, that has certainly been... Uh, kind of tamped down upon by the political establishment in the UK. But the really remarkable thing is that, you know, when it comes down to it, there is not that much in the way of protest. But again, they are cracking down enormously on some of the stuff. Like, you know, having a protest that is, you know, too loud or, you know, a protest where you literally do not coordinate with the police ahead of time is essentially illegal and grounds for arrest. Like, I think the, the King's coronation, uh, if you look at some of the stories that kind of came out of that a few weeks ago where we had just people who were, you know, handing out, uh, you know, rape alarms to people outside of, like, nightclubs in London were arrested because of a, you know, supposed plot to attack the King's horses with them or something. Like, I, I don't even know. But anyway, in a narrow sense, the authoritarian uh, measure... Uh, can said to be served as a practical purpose, minimizing disruption uh, and the bad publicity that flows from it. Although Britain's annual strike days remain low by historical standards, the government has tried to counter the recent uptick in industrial action by introducing labor laws that limit walkouts in the public sector. Uh, similarly, uh, following the rise of disruptive climate activism, 
Parliament has passed the policing and public order bills that make it easier to jail protesters. And the, in, in the international context of the new Cold War, attempts to strengthen the security state by making an offense to publish restricted information, for instance, are um, now an obvious complement to rising militarism. It would be wrong to claim, uh, with some of the more optimistic commentators on the British left are doing, um, that these reforms reflect a deep legitimacy crisis and a cons- consequent drift towards coercion in the absence of consent. Uh, while there's no great enthusiasm for Labour or the Tories, nor is there an alternative mass politics on the horizon. Corbynism, a challenge from above rather than from below, um, failed to leave a powerful socialist movement in its wake, but essentially left the opposite. The Tories' Thatcherite domestic program and hyper foreign policy have met no serious opposition in the streets. Draconian legislation is therefore aimed at individuals and institutions that government considers an inconvenience or quote-unquote public nuisance as opposed to a even genuine threat. Yet, if there are immediate objects of repression, Britain's liberalism is driven by a deeper dynamic. It is among those things, among other things, excuse me, a response to the country's ongoing economic malaise, sustained by sustained, uh, characterized by sustained stagnation, literal decline, and repeated failure to recover from severe shocks adequately. As Adam Tooze has written, um, the precarious growth of the model of the new labor years, based on a puissant, puissant uh, financial sector, cheap credit, uh, and asset bubbles was destabilized by the banking crisis of 2008. Since then, the country's traditional boom and bust cycle has been replaced, replaced by an unprecedented decline of relative productivity. In the hope of attracting investment, David Cameron's Tory Lib Dem coalition pursued an austerity agenda that further undermined the conditions for growth by stopping state capacity and impeded UK's response to subsequent tremors for Brexit, then the pandemic, and now the war in Ukraine. If the forecasts are correct, the country's annual growth rate will be a miserable 0.2% in the years leading up to the um, 2024 election. Whoever enters Adding Street will face a series of chronic problems recently itemized by the Financial Times, including uh, declining real incomes, barriers to ex- the expanding the labor force, um, atrophied public services, and capital markets unsettled by the cost of borrowing. Neither party is willing to contemplate a serious economic realignment in the scale of the split conjecture, uh, though they disagree on the modern points of scale and emphasis, the shared priority is to restore fiscal credibility by starving the public sector of funds while using modest supply-side reforms to quote-unquote stimulate growth. Both have conceded that the state must step in to contain the cost of living crisis and swap public for private ownership in areas where the market is entirely, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, swap public for private uh, ownership, so uh, m- maybe public uh, make uh, nationalize uh, or make some things public. Uh, yet even labor sentiment steps towards an active green industrial policy have been halted for fear of exceeding public spending limits. Yeah, it really is kind of a remarkable thing going on in Britain. And I think it is kind of a little bit different from, you know, what we have here because of the, the economic conditions are so different. Like in, in the UK, it almost seems like to a certain extent, like there is no new ideas by any stretch of the imagination. And the old ideas have completely stopped working. Like there is no kind of forward momentum. There is just the flattening of political possibility uh, into a very, very small, small window. Um, and that window is just letting in, you know, tons and tons of just like cold air, essentially, uh, which is really, really remarkable. And you know, the when it comes to when it comes down to it, you know, both labor and conservative, um, you're going to see the 
same kind of impulses of control because that, you know, whether it be on, on unions, whether it be on protests, whether it be on you know, anything else like that, any kind of, you know, like source of activism, whatever, um, it is going to be very, very hard to kind of imagine properly uh, what a new future could could be from that because that you know these kind of controls is kind of um you know as eagleton says here kind of this response to the economic malaise is playing a very uh very big role in this response and just you know at a certain point like yeah, what else can you do right like just throw your hands up in the air just take a big sigh you know because that essentially is all that that comes down to um all right that being said, let's move on now to our final story. And we are talking about Insider Global. Uh, so, yeah, this is it's, it's a pretty good video. Um, so the main character in said video, which actually comes from the New York Post, is Nicholas Carlson, who is the global editor-in-chief of Insider. Um, uh, so he is apparently... Um, He's been he's been viral before, um, which is always a good sign. Yeah, so he kind of got kind of embarrassed on you know not understanding how the mechanisms of the government work. Um, again, this, this here is from Discourse blog. Um, yeah, so insider employees are currently on strike, guessing they're not getting that global editor in chief money, but they've also put up some uh, some flyers about it in Carlson's Brooklyn neighborhood. Uh, which have Carl, Carlson's face on them, so, so it's probably something that he does not like. Um, you know, is he? Uh, you know, apparently, is yeah, the, the flyers have been going up, uh, and it has been you know a very interesting kind of you know, make the boss uncomfortable type of situation um, that we've seen. You know, n- not really often used, uh, kind of in the past. Uh, Nick Henry, we want you out as insider unions bargaining. We want you at. Uh, inside a union sparkling table, putting up these, these you know, flyers and all that kind of stuff. Um, oh, and yeah, so here's some of this. Have you seen this millionaire CEO? Meet your neighborhood, Nick Carlson, editor-in-chief of Insider Incorporated. Help us tell him that you're just putting this up uh, all in this, um, all in his neighborhood, all throughout Brooklyn, which is kind of a very interesting Windsor Terrace and Park Slope where Blodgett, who's the CEO, uh, and Carlson both reside. Uh, had roughly 400 flyers out with pictures of both of the men. Uh, apparently, he was now has been caught on tape going around and carrying down all union flyers. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very, very interesting situation. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, so here, here's the video. I don't know if it will kind of translate as well, but it was just end today on this video of this guy freaking out, going around on a city bike, an e-city bike of all things, and a little helmet on, uh, getting absolutely enraged and tearing down um, these flyers in a fit of fury. I'm going to kind of commentate it for you. So there's tablers kind of walking over to this this guy on a bike. Like, oh, what is he doing? They got their phones out. Frustrating. Yeah. Did you know... Are you recording me right now? I am. Who are you all? Um, I'm one of your reporters. You're not my reporter. Well, I guess that depends on how you look at it. I'm not your reporter. It's not my newsroom. I was like, you're not, I'm not your reporter anymore because you laid me off. And guess what? You laid off everyone on the crypto team. Bye! (laughs) 
and just goes to, you know, bike off across I the street. I just pull them all down. Yeah, so even when you're a millionaire head of a global editor in chief, right, of a newsroom, rather probably someone who has like literally no journalistic experience, you are still reduced to going around your neighborhood sweaty as hell on a city bike and ripping down a ripping down all these uh, employees' uh, flyers that they put up. Which, by the way, I think is a perfectly great strategy. Hope that Insider Union wins this fight, secures stronger conditions for journalism. And we will see you on Friday.